Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Keeping secrets is still possible. All the news that's fit. Read a fucking newspaper. The story is not over. Dark web drug trafficking, rogue cops, power struggles, and a betrayal interwoven into the world's most notorious tech startups. This might sound like the plotline of a Breaking Bad episode, but these stories are just the tip of what my next guest, Nick Bilton, has uncovered throughout his journalism career. Nick Bilton is a special correspondent at Vanity Fair and critically acclaimed journalist who's exposed the hidden corruption and inner workings of the technology sector for years. He's published a New York Times bestseller about Twitter's creation story in Hatching Twitter, complete with power struggles and betrayed friendships. And in his latest book, American Kingpin, Nick uses digital tools in his reporting to uncover a manhunt for the founder of Silk Road, the dark web's premier website for everything illicit. There is no other journalist that has covered Silicon Valley and its actors with as much fire, uncompromising critique, and nuance than Nick. We started off our conversation talking about the early stages of his career, running the New York Times tech blog, and working with beloved New York Times fashion photographer, Bill Cunningham. Uh, I was born in England, um, in the north of England, in a little town called Darlington. And um, I was always into technology, but I, I never actually wanted to be a writer, ever. Like, huh. I was never, a, you know, I think like astronaut and, and uh, you know, race car driver were on the top of the list, and uh, writer wasn't even on there. And um, uh, But my dad had an engineering factory where they used to make parts for trains and planes and things like that and I would go around and like play with all the contraptions and computers and whatnots and um, and I remember uh, uh, I would take everything apart too my dad's stuff I would like you know take his camera apart and and so I wanted to build stuff I you know I never really wanted to write about it and then um, fast forward many 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 years and ended up in New York and uh, I'd gone to school for art direction and design and painting and things like that, and uh, that had segued. I was fascinated by the news, and that had segued into me becoming an art director at the New York Times. And, oh, wow. Um, I was there for for several years. Um, I started out as the, the art director for the style section, laying out all the Bill Cunningham pages and things like that, and then I switched over to the you business section. A, you must have been a good good art. I mean, that seems like a lot of pressure right there. The art director for the style section of the New York Times well, is it was, like pretty it heavy. Well, it was fun. It was like, it was uh, it was really creative and, and lots of pressure, which I love. And and um, and you have to do something different and exciting every single day. And and so uh, I ended up at the business section and, uh, and then started working in the research labs at the New York Times, like kind of envisioning the future. So I had two jobs. One was in the newsroom and one was in the research labs. And I eventually got um, a uh, – uh, I was going to go to Google. I got a job offer at Google, and uh, and I went to go tell my editor. In, in New York? Uh, in I actually don't remember where it was going to be. I think it was actually going to be out in San Francisco. 
uh, it would be working on the Google News team, and um, uh, and uh, they wanted it wasn't an a official offer, but they were like, hey, we want you to come. Can you come and, and meet with the folks like Larry and Sergey and everything? So I went to my editor and I said, hey, you know, let's grab lunch, and we grab lunch. And he said, um, I said, hey, I'm thinking about leaving, going to Google. And he said, oh, it's a shame we can't keep someone like you. And and we were just chatting over Chinese food. And I said, what, what are you doing with the tech blog, by the way? Because no one wanted to write for the tech blog. They all wanted to write for the paper. And he lamented how no one wants to write for it. And it, I don't even actually remember the words coming out of my mouth, but apparently they did. But I said, I would try doing it. And there was a hiring freeze at the Times. And he was like, really? You want to try it? And I was like, uh, sure. And so they threw me on the blog. So and that was like your first, that was really your first like as a writer. my first foray as a writer. Um, and um, and I'd written like some guest blog posts for, for like, you know, other websites about design or technology or something like that. But this was like my first real deal journalism. And, uh, and I just figured it out on the job pretty much at the New York Times. And this is like 2006 or 7? Uh, sure. This is around 2000, 2000, yeah, around 2000, two, it's actually 2009. Okay. Uh, not too long ago. And um, and what happened was I'd been working in the research labs and I had been a designer and so I had made lots of connections and friends who were at Apple and Google and places like that. So I literally would just call up my friends and be like, what are you working on? And they'd be like, oh my God, we're doing this thing called an iPad and it's amazing. And so I'd be like, is it cool if I write about it? And they'd be like, yeah, totally. And so I'd started breaking stories left and right just out of sheer luck because I knew these people. And yeah. um, uh, and that was kind of how my career began. What was it like? Do you So you worked a bit for Bill Cunningham, you said. Or Bill was Bill an amazing, amazing guy. He he had this memory uh, like unlike anyone I've ever encountered where, um, you know, for people that don't know yeah. who Bill is, Bill uh, <clears throat> was the fashion photographer for the New York Times and uh, and the nightlife photographer, and uh, was was famous in New York for wearing his blue smock and his bicycle in the dead of winter and going out and taking pictures of people. And he still shot with a film camera um, when I was there, and he'd been at the paper for I believe about sixty years. And he had um, he lived uh, up near Lincoln Center, and he had an apartment which was not really a, an apartment. It was more of a storage facility for all of his negatives. And he literally had, you know, he would shoot a dozen rolls of film a day and he had the negatives all piled up um, in these in these drawers. And you'd be sitting there working with him and he'd be putting together a page of, of what the fashion trend was that week that he had noticed. And uh, he'd be like, I'll be right back, child. And he'll run off back, literally get on his bike, you know, sitting there for like a half hour, get on his bike, ride back to Lincoln Center, and come back with a negative from, like, 1924. <laughs> and he'd be like, scan this one and put it in next to this. And it was his, his mind was just brilliant. He was an incredibly sweet guy. Yeah. That's an amazing experience for an art director. It was an amazing time, experience, right? I think, for anyone, yeah, yeah. To, to have that opportunity to work with him. You miss working at the Times now that, like, you know, the Times is, I mean, it's always been, but it's, like, such at the, the Times and the Post being such at the epicenter of, like, all the tumult going on. I don't miss it. Um, I love reading it um, and uh, um, and have an incredible amount of admiration for all of my friends that work there and all the new people that have come since I've left. And uh, I don't miss it because I um, uh, the daily grind of the news is it's a grind, you know, yeah. and and, you know, being a Vanity Fair, um, I, uh, I get to work on longer form stories and, you know, lots of different forms of, of of storytelling and we do a, a weekly TV show called Cheddar TV for The Hive. We do a podcast called Inside The Hive. 
um, where I get to interview amazing guests. Um, and it's just a kind of a well-rounded uh, experience, and, and I really enjoy the um, uh, the pace of it. So, so tell me about the the book. It came out in May. It's called American Kingpin. I have always been like a huge fan of books about technology and the internet that are like sort of on the underbelly of what's going on on the internet. And I would say this is certainly a huge expose of a big part of the underbelly of the internet. Or was tell tell people a little bit about the story and um, the 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 guy you you sort of followed or didn't follow but wrote about uh, the founder of Silk Road. So um, <clears throat> I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years um, after I um, uh, uh, left New York, um, and I was still at the New York Times, and I lived in an area of the city called Glen Park, and it used to be a very sleepy part of, of Glen Park. It was, um, uh, I mean, of San Francisco. It was a where the firefighters and teachers used to live, and when I moved there, they were all kind of getting priced out. So there was this old Irish bar that had been there for, I don't know, decades, probably a century, I don't know, and and um, and this tiny little library that was probably the size of like a shoe store um, and uh, a little sushi place and coffee place and so on. And it was a great little part of the city. And um, I used to walk my dog every day past that tiny library, and I would always think, like, who goes into that library in San Francisco, like where everyone's on a computer 24-7? Um, fast forward to uh, uh, a few months later, and um, I saw on the news one day that, that um, uh, Ross Ulbricht, uh, this kid from Texas, this 20-something-year-old kid from Texas, had been running the Silk Road drug website partially out of that library oh. right near my house. Wow. And I was fascinated by it because the more I looked into it, um, uh, the more I realized that Ross and I went to the same coffee shop, same sushi restaurant, same diner, same grocery store, went for walks on the same path that I walked every day. And that, to me, was just kind of mind-boggling that someone was running this website called The Silk Road, which was making hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions for selling drugs and guns and potentially body parts, which was one of the things he wanted to sell, um, and uh, was one of the most wanted people on the Internet. Um, had, had you um, gone on The Silk Road before? Or were you aware of it before you heard the sort of story? It must have been as a... As a tech writer for the, I had um, gone on it. I'd written. I I'd had a stint at the Times where I'd written a lot about security. There was a point where we didn't have a security reporter, and I kind of filled in and and, and wrote um, a lot of the hacker-related stories about Lulzek and black hats and white hats, you know, and and DefCon and things like that. And um, and that had, of course brought me, you know, to eventually to the dark web. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it was an article that essentially Gawker essentially owned. They had they had broken the story on it, Adrian Chen, um, and uh, and you know, and it was just I really enjoyed reading about it and was fascinated by it and delved around a little bit. And I think I had written a couple of columns just about the dark web, but not necessarily about the Silk Road. Once I started, you know, when I decided to to, to write a book on it, and it was coming off the heels of the Twitter book. It just I was just amazed at what I discovered. Um, it was just a, this world that um, that you couldn't literally make up. It was just you know it was like Breaking Bad, but uh, but even less realistic. What were the things that you, you you discovered early on that really pushed you to keep reporting on it? Well, the thing that was the most fascinating for me was not necessarily the things I discovered, but it was the reporting process. So you know Ross Ulbricht um, had lived in. San Francisco, he lived all over the world, Austin, Texas, Australia, and so on. But he ended up settling down in San Francisco to run the site. And he was incredibly um, reclusive. Um, he had a few friends uh, that he hung out with on a daily basis. 
Um, but he, to them, was just Ross, and then he would go onto his computer, and he would be the Dread Pirate Roberts running this website, ordering people to be killed, even though they didn't get killed, um, you know, making decisions about what kinds of guns and drugs and so on could be sold on the website. And when it came time to write the book, um, I knew he wasn't going to talk to me because he was at trial. Um, but what I was able to get was literally, and I'm not over-exaggerating, several million words of chat logs and diary entries and photos thousands of photos and videos and so on that I was able to piece together with a researcher where we connected Ross's life and the Dread Pirate Roberts. And the reporting process was so fascinating because we live in a time where um, everything we do is on the internet. And um, and people don't even realize half the time that how easy it is to kind of connect the dots. I For me, there were shocking moments where, I, for example, I got access to a photo that Ross had had on his laptop of a girl called Crystal. That's all I knew, it was a picture of a girl called Crystal. Um, Using the GPS data and the EXEF file in the back of the file, was able to figure out that she lived near Portland, found some other information that led to, like, timestamps on other photos, eventually figured out what her, you know, name was, her phone number, her address, her username for sites like Yelp and things like that. And within about a half an hour, knew more about this girl, Crystal, than most of the people I've I've spent hours with talking to in person. And that was just amazing. And it it created, it allowed me to write the book in a narrative nonfiction way that reads just like a novel. How did you end up get? how did you get all the chat logs and all that data? Like, where did that come from? Was it like Freedom of Information Act or stuff? Or, no, it was yeah. just through reporting, which okay. I can't really, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I yeah. can't tell you who, who, got, who I got it from or, or what. But a lot of it was put into evidence. Yeah. Um, a lot of it was at the trial. Some of it came from friends. Some of it came from other people. Um, uh, but, um, you know, it, it, was, um, it was fascinating. I mean, a lot of it's out there. You know, one of the things that we did, my researcher and I, was we went through Ross's social media feeds, um, Twitter, Facebook, Google+. Yes, he used Google+. Um, uh, he was the one guy. Um, uh, YouTube and so on. And um, we put them all into a timeline. Then we took all the Dread Pirate Robert stuff, public stuff that was on the website, private stuff that was in his chats and so on. And we pieced it all together um, on this timeline, then took the photos. And you would look, and it would, there would be these moments where the Dread Pirate Roberts would say, hey, guys, to his employees, I'm going away for the weekend. You watch the, you watch the ship and make sure nothing goes wrong. And he would log off. And the second he would log off, you would see a picture of Ross with, like, a backpack as he was going camping with his friends. And then you would see these timestamps from where, you know, in front of his friend's house at the Golden Gate Bridge at the campground. And so then using the timestamps we were able to figure out, okay, if you travel 60 miles an hour on this road, you're probably about an hour and 20 minutes away from San Francisco. And then using Google Earth, we were able to see exactly where the campground where he was. And, and, and to piece all these things together was just, was just amazing to kind of put, one, put two different people that were being, you know, diff, different identities yeah. and make them one. I mean, the, and the criminal activity itself is so... Is, has so much data exhaust to it, if yeah. you will, right? Like, yeah, the, the, doing, you know... It was like a, digital was a it was like digital crime essentially so the one thing that was really interesting is that um the fbi agents and you know part of the book follows all the different agents um a couple of the agents actually start working for ross and selling him information stealing money themselves fake murdering people like i mean that's where it really becomes kind of a crazy crazy story but um the the one of the things that's like just a little funny aside is the the FBI agents, the cyber crime squad, they sit in an area of, of the FBI in New York called the pit. And that used to be where the um, organized crime guys would trace the mobsters in New York, you know, the Gaudis and so on. And the irony is that 
the mobsters in New York hated technology because they were afraid that it would be the thing that would be their downfall. And that's why they used payphones and they drove like 20 minutes to a different payphone to make sure that no one was tapping it. And yet now they, the cybercrime unit that sits in that same spot, their job is to find people just because they use technology. Right, right. Did you, did, I mean, there's a, sounds like there's a huge disconnect between Ross, the the murderer, drug kingpin, et cetera, and the guy who went camping. Oh, yeah, I mean... Did you, were you, like, in the reporting, were you able to reconcile, like, how this, you know, this young kid who was at a library and going camping and so forth was also, I mean, a, in, on some level just, in a, I mean, wanted to be a violent criminal, right? I think that, I don't know if he wanted to be a violent criminal. I think um, he justifies, he justified his violence. And he did it in the same way that, you know, Steve Jobs would justify people at Foxconn killing themselves because they're overworked. Um, it's just part of the job. It's part of the things that happen. Uh, um, and and I think for, for Ross, he believed that the Silk Road was, you know, he started it with these altruistic goals. He wanted to make money, but it was an altruistic goal of saying, I want to make sure drugs are legalized because by making drugs illegal, People end up in jail, arrested for buying marijuana, and it's not the government's place to tell people what they should and should not do and what they can and cannot put in their own body. Totally, yeah. totally agree with it. Right. The problem was um, he created a site with almost no rules. There was no child porn allowed. Um, but, uh, um, but anything was for sale, guns, any drug, um, you know, and what happened was uh, – because of that mandate of anything goes, um, these labs in China that make essentially synthetic heroin, which is cheaper than regular heroin and 50 to 100 times stronger, and it's called fentanyl, they were able, using this website, able to ship tiny little quantities to people in the Midwest and so on. And um, From China. From China. Um, and it goes undetected in the mail because it's mm. just tiny little amounts. Um, and um, and that has led to help lead to the part of the opioid epidemic. Yeah. Um, and and I think that you know for Ross he saw he didn't see that side of it. He was incapable of looking at that side of it. And he um, uh, he believed that he was he really truly believed that he was going to legalize drugs and that he would come out one day as the person who saved the world by showing that by dr- making drugs legal um, you were reducing crime and saving people's lives. Wow. Did um, was there a lot of other people being arrested? you know, who are participants or users of the site, you know? Oh, there... yeah, there's, there's been um, over 350, maybe 400 or so people that were arrested over over the period of time um, that the site was 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 up. And since then, everyone who worked for Ross um, was arrested. The only people that weren't were a couple of people who scammed him out of some money, and I, uh, and I don't think they ever caught them. But there was one guy who worked for Ross. His name was Variety Jones, which is my favorite uh, pseudonym uh, in history. Um, he was arrested in Thailand. Um, you know, uh, there were other employees who had names like same, same, but different and so on. And, you know, they were arrested in Australia or in North Carolina and places like that, you know. And yeah, the whole thing came tumbling down. And then, of course, as a result of the site going away, um, new sites popped up. Uh, and there are dozens of, of sites that exist now on the dark web. Um, and every once in a while, the government will shut one down. Uh, and arrest a bunch of people, um, and uh, and then there'll be a, a, like a game of whack-a-mole, new ones that take its place. Right. Were the people who were working for him, what were they doing? Were they like m- mostly coding and maintaining the site? or He ran the site like a business. Um, people clocked in and clocked out. Uh, he was incredibly um, aggressive with them, uh, you know, gave them talking 
twos if they were late, you know, wanted to see a timesheet of what they'd done that day. Um, and he had people that ran the forums. Um, he had people that responded to, to you know, uh, complaints, like that maybe their drugs didn't show up or their drugs were not as good as the site <laughs> said or whatever. Uh, he, had he had employees that helped him with security, that were recoding the site. Um, just and like a regular, just, just a regular startup. Yeah. Um, and then he had Variety Jones, who was essentially his like Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, and Variety Jones was incredibly smart. And in the book, he, he just has these unbelievable lines that you're just like, how did this guy come up with that? You know, there's one I love where he says they're chatting on over chat, and uh, and Variety Jones says, oh, hold on a second, someone's at my door, and he comes back and he goes, it's my mailman. He just doesn't know he's my drug dealer too. <laughs> And um, and there's always these little quips that they have, and and then and and Ross, you know, is kind of living this very quiet, silent, secretive life, and um, he eventually in San Francisco moves into an apartment that he rents on Craigslist and um, changes his name to uh, to to Josh, um, tells people he's a trader and so on and uh, day trader, and um, and but because he's living that lifestyle, he he he's lonely. And Variety Jones, who's also living that lifestyle, is lonely too. And they they become really really good friends. And they start telling each other their life stories and like you know talking about politics and porn and girls and you name it. And uh, uh, and it's 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 sad to see that that part of the story because um, uh, you can see that he's he's just kind of looking for something that he hasn't found. Mm. And where's Variety Jones now? Where's Variety Jones now? Variety Jones is in prison in Thailand, and he's, they're trying to extradite him, but he's, uh, he's being very clever, and he's, he's managing to, uh, to, to not let that happen. Uh, you know, there's these funny little asides, though, that happen that I think are really fascinating. Like, one of the things is Ross, in the very beginning, is um, he grows his own magic mushrooms because uh, he needs product for his website, and he gets a secret uh, storage, for, I mean, a secret apartment in, outside of Austin, and he gets the gypsum and the cookers and all this stuff, and he's literally like Walter White in Breaking right. Bad. And while he's literally growing the mushrooms, he spends time sitting, he's waiting for like things to cure and stuff. He literally sits on the floor and watches Breaking Bad, and um, which is just an amazing scene, like him shirtless watching this, 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 this show that's the kind of the same thing. And then um, when he gets caught in the library and the him getting caught is not giving away the ending of the book. It is way more dramatic than this. But when he gets caught in the library, the reason he gets caught is because he has gone to the library to download an interview about the last episode of Breaking Bad, which had premiered the night before. At the end of the day, was he like a, just a fan of Walter? No, White? he wasn't. He, like he, he, he himself he, on that or something? Yeah, his girlfriend, Julia, told me that uh, he used to say the show wasn't very good because it wasn't very believable. <laughs> That's amazing. I think it's been optioned into a movie, a film. Yeah, it's being. It, it was optioned by Fox and the Coen Brothers and Steve Zalian um, are working on a script. And, um, and that's amazing. That must yeah. be. Yeah, we'll see. What, a, yeah, it's it's fun. It's I mean, it's Hollywood, so you never you know never what could happen. We twenty years from now, they could still be working on it, but um, or it could get made. But uh, but it's exciting. Um, but what's you know. What's been really exciting is um, is the reception of the book. It's just been uh, it's been amazing. It was, it's been the the, the audio book has done incredibly well. Uh, it's read by this actor who just does a phenomenal job, um, and he he does the voices of Ross and the FBI agents and so on. Oh, wow. And it's been the number one nonfiction audio book for a few weeks. That's amazing. Uh, it's it's a completely different experience than reading your a book that you wrote because you're hearing someone tell it and. And it's such an insane story that it's 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 hard to stop. Listening. It's almost like watching actors, or I mean, not watching, but like letting someone else sort of bring their take to it. I guess, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a different. I mean, I remember when I first downloaded the 
the audiobook uh, right when it came out and and I couldn't stop listening and I was like what happens next you know because it was just a different it was a different version of the story and so it's uh, and it also because of the the novel-esque like way it's it's told um, it's it's pretty gripping um, and this is a, this is a I mean this topic is in a way I guess you you mentioned that it had you're covering on some level he ran it like a startup but much, much different topic in other ways than uh, the Twitter book that you wrote that came out a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've in, in some way, I've kind of become less interested in tech. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, at Vanity Fair, I, write, I still write about tech a lot, um, uh, um, but I also write about politics and culture and Hollywood. And, uh, and I think that what's happened is with tech is, um, you know, in the early day in the in the 40s and 50s and 60s with cars when cars were like going through these transformations there were magazines that were like the tech blogs of today you know or the tech blogs of 10 years ago at least and they would write about the new bumper or the wings or whatever and it was you know it was very esoteric and and there was lots of you know stories about companies that were trying to push each other out of business and who was winning and who wasn't and so on and the industry was very very similar to the tech industry uh and eventually cars just became cars. You know, they just became something that was referenced in right. page one story without any thought or rhyme or reason. And uh, and I think that's happened with tech. You know, tech has become this thing that we were all kind of enamored with the, the tiniest little details. I mean, I remember when I f- was working in the research labs at the Times, we were always looking at like the speed of a hard drive or a, 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 a RAM or the processor or whatever it was, or like how much memory this had and, and so on and so forth. And, and now I don't actually know how fast my iPhone is. I, I have no idea what that processor is in yeah. it because it's not, it doesn't matter. It's fast irrelevant. Enough, right? yeah. yeah. And because those, most of this stuff is now irrelevant and we no longer think about it or worry about it or question it, um, it's become less about the tech and more about the people. And to me, that's the fascinating part. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, and that was really a, a <clears throat> huge part of hatching Twitter, right? Was that you really, I mean, you really got into the personalities and all the people and the origin story and, and that kind of stuff. Is there stuff that you learned writing that that you still see playing out in the way in what's happening with Twitter today? Oh, God, what's happening with Twitter today? I have. I mean, I have to say. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I, like, I, I never, when I first started writing the Twitter book, to me it was a... It was, I knew that there was this dramatic story that no one knew, and that to me was the fun part of it. It was the challenge of getting a story. You know, everyone thought that poor Jack Dorsey had been thrust out of the company by Evan Williams for power and control. The reality was the complete opposite, and Jack had staged a coup to come back and get Evan out and so on and so forth. There was Noah Glass, this forgotten founder, and and you know all these people that had been written out of history. And to me, that was the story. The story was telling the true narrative of what had happened in that company that had been so influential and was such an accident uh, on so many levels. But, but the thing that it was so fascinating that these, that there were these four friends um, uh, that accidentally started this thing called Twitter, um, and then they all stabbed each other in the face and back and legs and yeah. arms to try to take control, and two of them become billionaires. One of them makes a few million bucks, and one of them ends up with nothing. And to yeah. me, that was the story. And... So the technology had nothing to do with it. It just happened to be a tech company. How did you know the – did you just know the inside story from reporting? I didn't know the inside oh, story, didn't. no. I, I, the proposal that I had written, I knew Jack Dorsey. I knew Evan Williams. I knew all those guys. And I was very friend, I was very close with Jack. And the story that I wrote as a book proposal that I sold was the one that everyone thought that was the story. And it was that Jack had come up with this idea when he was a little kid in his bedroom in St. Louis that he had – gone off to San Francisco to realize this idea when he finally did this this big mean entrepreneur called Evan Williams thrust him out of the company and thrust Noah Glass out uh, and took control of, of, of Jack's idea. That was the book proposal. <clears throat> when I sold the book and I went to Jack and I said, hey, great news. I'm going to do the Twitter book. He was like, I'm not working with you on it. And it was just totally shocking to me. It was like, what are you talking about? We're I'm going to tell you a real story. I'm going to yeah, tell it's how a real you got... story. I'm going to show how you're the hero. And he he just he he was he would not let he wouldn't let anyone work with me. Friends that we mutual friends he told not to talk to me. And that to me was that was what set me down the path of trying to find out what the real story was because it didn't make sense. So it's ironic because if he'd have worked with me, I probably would have written the story he wanted. I would have gotten it wrong, but um, right. um, but then it it just it didn't make sense, and I started I started talking to former and current employees, and and eventually convinced everyone um, who worked there to talk to me, uh, including the co-founders, and then found the real story, which was that Jack had helped come up with the idea, but he'd helped come up with it with eleven other people who who contributed to it. Evan Williams came up with the timeline concept because of blogging, which he had invented Blogger. You know, Noah Glass came up with the 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 name Twitter. He came up with the look and feel, which was like quirky and fun. Biz Stone had had you know come up with the idea of it being a, a company that was allowing people to have free speech and say whatever they want. Jack, of course, came up with these disappearing, um, these short form messages that were 140 characters ended up being 140 characters long, but they all contributed something. You know, in Jack's original version, every time you sent a tweet, it was actually called a status update. Uh, the last one you had done disappeared, right. which Anthony Scaramucci, I'm sure, would have loved, <laughs> but um, but that's not the product that exists today in any way, shape, or form. So they all contributed, and without them all contributing, it wouldn't. I it guarantee would not exist today. 
probably the most influential person was Noah Glass, who was Jack's best friend, who Jack um, helped have kick, kicked out of the company. And so that was the story that I ended up discovering. Um, Jack was CEO in the beginning, and he was a terrible CEO. Today, he's actually a pretty good CEO. Um, he's done an incredible job with Square. Um, he's doing his best with Twitter, and it's really, really hard to turn that place around because of all the infighting. But um, but that was the story that I ended up writing. Yeah. You cover a lot of people who are probably really interesting and admirable and doing really interesting and cool stuff. And I would imagine it's like a natural instinct to like like them or, you know, to sort of want to be friends, not maybe want to be friends with them, but to, you know, to feel friendly toward them. But then you have to be a journalist who's like writing the facts and who basically takes a step back and exposes these stories who at the end of the day was an unknown story about it turns out a friend of yours. How is that hard to do? Um, I, you know, I, I, I was, I was at dinner with Jack once before the book and we were, we were with some people from, um, some people from the government and we were, it was at the sushi restaurant and one of the guys who was at dinner said to me and Jack, we were talking about something and, you know, laughing about something. He said, how, he's like, Nick, you write about Twitter for the New York Times. How do you, how are you and Jack like friendly? And, um, and Jack actually answered and he goes, I know that. Nick will cover the company and me honestly, and that's the way it worked. And that was the that was the deal that I had with it, everyone. Most people, have, most reporters have a rule that everything is on the record until it's off, and I had a rule with friends that everything was off the record until it was on. And there's lots of, I mean, there's so many things that I didn't put in the Twitter book or have never written about um, that would be like front page stories because it was in that moment of off the record. Yeah. Um, uh, and and I think that, you know, as a reporter, you know, David Carr, who was one of my mentors in the New York Times, he once said to me, you have to kind of, you have to pick who you're going to report on and who you're going to be friends with. And m- at the end of the day, most of the time you end up reporting on most people. There's mm. only a few people you end up being friends with. And, right. and, and for me, that is honestly because I don't actually think a lot of these people are that admirable. Mm. I, I think that they are, there are some, I mean, like Aaron Levy, I think, is, is one of the nicest, most honest CEOs um, I've ever met. Um, uh, but Mark Zuckerberg fucked so many people to get to where he got to. Yeah. You know, I mean, literally, there are, you know, Jack screwed over his best friends. Yeah. Evan did the same thing. He wasn't perfect. You yeah. know, um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, not a great person. You know, uh, Travis Kalanick did not give a shit about women that worked at his company and what they were treated like intentionally subverted the law. I mean, these are not yeah. admirable people right, a lot of the right, times. Right. Um, they are people that are so intent upon winning mm. that they will do anything possible to get there. And those are people I wouldn't want to be friends with. Right. Interesting. So they're, they're, all, fla- they're all flawed, so it makes it a not, little... Yeah. Most of them are flawed. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley that are doing incredible work and are, you know, to borrow the most annoying phrase in the world, are changing the world. Sure. But you know what I found is is actually the people who are not written about and the people who don't want to be written about are the ones that are often the ones doing the best stuff. Right. You know, there are companies out there that are doing similar things to what Theranos was trying to do, but you don't read about them because they're just their heads are down and they're right. doing their job. Um, and it's the people who often want to be famous and and lauded as the next Steve Jobs. Um, that are the ones that you should be cautious of. There's a lot of conversations out there 
today, these days, around automation, you know, and the effect yep. it's going to have on society. It's a huge topic of, certainly a big topic during the election. A lot of people would say it had a huge influence on the results of the, the presidential election. Who are the voices in those conversations that you really think are interesting? What's your take on that? Because, you know, if you, like, listen to Mark Andreessen, everything's going to be everything's going to be great. Oh, more. <laughs> but are there are there are people and voices that you really I mean, I think, follow and think are, are are really worth paying attention to in that conversation? Yeah, but there are often people that don't speak about it publicly. You know, I mean, I think Jeff Bezos is giving this a lot of thought and and is being um, you know, he's fully aware of what's hap- what's going to happen. Um, he's talked about it a little bit publicly. I personally do believe that automation, driverless cars and things like that are going to have a bigger impact on society um, in the next decade to two than any technology we've ever created. I'm just going to make the iPhone look like period at the end of a sentence. Um, uh, And I don't think that the government has any comprehension of what's going to happen. And we are going to end up in the era where you're going to have, you know, probably four companies that are worth a trillion dollars that own most of the markets, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook. And I think that what's going to happen is this automation revolution um, will take place in such a short period of time that we're not actually going to know what the hell's going on. And everyone says, oh, well, we, you know, Mark Andreessen's like, well, we made it through the Industrial Revolution and we got media and we got all these great things and creativity out of it. Yeah, that took place over about 80 to 100 years. And and even that was difficult and tumultuous. The automation revolution where driverless trucks are going to take truckers, 10.5 million truckers jobs and 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 the the industries that support the truckers, like the gas station attendants and and even the prostitutes at the gas stations and the you know the people that clean the bathrooms and and so on and so forth, those jobs are going to vanish in in just a couple of years. Yeah. Um, you're not going to just see one driverless truck on the road. You're going to see fleets of them. Yeah. And and I think that um, that there isn't enough of a conversation in Silicon Valley about this. Um, and. It's something that some reporters are talking about. Kara Swish is really um, interested in this and and fascinated by what's going to happen and trying to kind of raise the flags and other reporters are doing the same thing. People like Mark Andreessen, you know, just say, oh, well, we're just going to give everyone a universal basic income. Are you kidding me? The Republicans won't even give people health care. Yeah. You think they're going to want to give them free money? Yeah. No. So it's, it, it's going to, in my opinion, either in 2020 or 2024, it's going to be the, one of the hottest topics in the election. Yeah. I mean, do you have any optimism about sort of how technology is going to... Oh, I mean, yeah. Not to say that you don't, but... No, I don't have a lot of optimism. Uh, <laughs> the other no, side I of think, it, though, look, how do you think of the... How do you see, how do you see like, the next, you know, 10, 15 years in terms of uh, technology impact on, on society? I think that um, the things that will happen, the benefits actually do outweigh the negatives. And the reason for that is, let's take driverless cars again. In the United States last year, 33,500 people died in car accidents. 95% of those are because of user error, like people checking their phone or doing their makeup or not paying attention or too tired or whatever. And globally, 1.2 million people die every year with car accidents. So imagine that you can just eradicate that, which you will be able to with driverless cars. Driverless cars learn, it's, it's, you know, if you take 100,000 people and you stick them all in a car and one of them gets in a car accident because they run a red light and T-bone someone, those other 999 people don't learn that mistake. If those cars roll driverless, every single one of those cars learns that mistake. Right. And they don't make it again. And I think that, so the benefits of that are incredible and incredibly admirable. And it's, and it's the reason that a lot of people 
universities like Carnegie Mellon and so on are working on this project because that's what their goal is. The goal is to get to to um, zero deaths because of cars. Um, the the problem is I think that we don't talk about the negatives with technology enough, which is probably why I can't shut up about them. But like, you know, and and I think that there's there's a opportunity to turn that around as we move into this next era of what technology does. And so an example is I remember. I used to be a part of this group in, in Brooklyn, New York called NYC Resistor, and we used to build like robots and use Arduinos, these like little computer chip things, and just goof around and have fun, and we'd talk classes and, and so on. And I remember I was in the room when some of the guys were working on this thing called MakerBot, which was essentially going to be the first commercial 3D printer. Yeah. And it was fascinating to see this this machine that looked like a printer that could print objects, like bottles and so on and so forth. And I remember saying oh my God, what are people going to use this for? And they were like, imagine being at home and you're, you're able to print out your own iPhone case or a wall hook or whatever it is. And I was like, that's crazy. It's going to change the way we buy things. Yeah. And what was the first thing that people did with 3D printers? They made plastic print, print, printable, fully functional guns. <laughs> and those guys never thought of it. I never thought of it. But if if companies like Google and Facebook and so on could, or Twitter or whatever, could sit down and think, okay, our next product does X. What are all the bad ways that it could be used? And let's try to figure out how our news feed could not be hacked by the Russians to influence an election with fake news. How people, you know, can't build bots on Twitter. Um, how um, driverless cars, while they're going to uh, save lives, can't be hacked by the Russians or North Koreans to kill people. Um, and I think that it's it's so important for companies to start thinking about those things before they happen, and they just don't. Yeah, I mean, it really comes out of a culture, like, if you really go all the way back, right, it almost, to me, it comes out of, you know, you're a media company and you have a message board, like, in the mid-90s or something, right? And then all these people start, you know, saying negative things or swearing and so forth, and you sort of, the companies kind of realize that, like, oh, well, people are going to argue and complain and we can't get into... It's not our. It's not our problem. We can't get into moderating all these different things, and it, it really sort of, from there, right? There's there's always yeah. been this sort of standoffishness around taking ownership of the bad stuff that can happen, right? It's well, you can't. People will take guns and do bad things with them. People will kill people with cars, and they'll go visit their grandparents. There's always bad things, right? But they they never really own it. Well, to to bring this back around to Ross Ulbricht and American Kingpin, Ross built this website where anything goes. And as a result, there were kids that overdosed and died, adults that overdosed and died, the uh, people in the Midwest that were able to gain access to fentanyl, which was a drug that is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin, who overdosed and died. There were, you know, it, it, he created an entirely new way of buying and selling illegal things in the world. Um, and it's, he revolutionized it in many ways. That wasn't his intention. But that's what happened. And I, and I think that the problem I see with Ross and his idea was that the original idea, I think, was actually a good one. Yeah. I don't believe that people should go to jail for buying and selling magic mushrooms. Right. You know how many people have died from magic mushrooms in the past 30 years? Zero, basically. Zero. Yeah. There's two recorded cases, and they that one's a heart attack and one's a, something else, and they don't actually think they're actually recorded cases. Zero. So you should go to jail for 20 years. That I totally agree with that. But when it comes to, oh, we'll sell body parts on here, and we'll sell fentanyl, and we'll sell drugs that has never no one even knows what they are to anyone of any age, then that's when I have a problem with it. And yeah. I think that that 
is the same with the internet. The, a lot of the people, not that run the companies that work on the internet, but a lot of the people that actually work on the internet are good people. You know, they are fun, nerdy programmers that get excited by writing some code that they see in the real world. And, and I think that, but at the same time, they don't realize that, that their goal is that let's build this utopia where everyone can do whatever they want. And I think that you have to have rules. Yeah. The Silk Road, Ross would have been lauded. I mean, he is lauded as a hero by some people, but I think that people would have been, if he had, he have not built the site that could do anything or even tried to kill people to protect the site and so on and so forth. I, I think he would have been a hero. You know, he would have been a hero to me, you right. know, but he went too far and allowed it to be completely open. And I think with the internet, you know, Twitter is a perfect example. Anyone can say anything without any repercussions. And I don't believe that that works in society. It just there has to be some sort of rules. There has to be some sort of regulation. Um, and we've we've seen this over and over and over again on the internet, from those message boards to Twitter to to Twitter to to the future of of you know 3D printers and so on. And I think that uh, that we can't just put things out there anymore and hope it works itself out. I think that there needs to be more thought into the ways it'll yeah. be used for negative. What is the stuff that you're hoping to cover? Like, I'm still interested. Next year, still right? interested in tech, but much more the you know s- s- always fascinated by the people in tech mm. um, rather than the tech itself. I'm really fascinated by uh, the future of fake news. I think that the, the version we've seen today um, is of just written fake news is just the beginning. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing technologies come out there where people are able to manipulate audio, where you can type a bunch of words and have Vladimir Putin say it. Yeah. You can imagine, you know, in 2018, there'll be fake audio clips of certain candidates saying things that they never said and real audio clips that people are saying fake. And then fast forward to 2020, and that's going to happen with video. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's already video stuff. There's on already that video sort of technology that I've there, written yeah. about where you can take your webcam and say, you know, make Barack Obama move his mouth to say things he didn't yeah. say. And so that's that's really fascinating. I'm fascinated by what's going to happen with automation, um, both in a good way and a bad way. I think there's going to be incredible things that will happen and, and then incredibly bad things that will happen. You know, some of the great things are like cars will no longer be cars in the future. You know, today I got in my car to take my kid to, to preschool and then come here to work and I sit in the front seat, he sits in the back seat, and we stop at red lights and so on and so forth. And you can imagine, like, uh, in the future, maybe um, I call a, a preschool car and to come get me, like, almost like when you call an Uber or Lyft, and, and it's got, like, toys inside, and we can sit and play together on the way to school. Or um, maybe you and I want to record this podcast in a meeting car as we're going to another meeting or something right. like that. Doesn't that sound fun? But there'll be like gym cars and bar cars and, and you know, there won't be pizza delivery people. There'll be a robot that will deliver a pizza to your door that will cook right. on the way to your house. Right. You know, you can imagine apartment complexes where maybe you want your studio by the pool or you want to take it to the beach and you literally drive your house somewhere right. or something like that. Yeah. And I think that's really amazing and fascinating. And then I'm also fascinated by the job loss and what's going to happen there and how how the government and, and these big tech tycoons um, can can ensure that that happens smoothly, and I don't think it will. Nick, I want to thank you. Thank the, you. The book is American Kingpin. Yep. You can, it's uh, on Amazon now. It's on Amazon and Audible. And it's a great audiobook, number one on the audiobook charts right now. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, thank you so you. much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Nick Bilton for stopping by and talking with us. I highly recommend that you snag a copy of Nick's book, American Kingpin, 
It's an incredible piece of journalism that sheds a necessary light on the darker underbelly of the internet. Our producer is Sebastian Ade. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Pottington Bear. Claire Graves is freshly delivered holiday panettone. Hey, we were just joking around the office the other day that asking for listeners to leave us a review is starting to feel a lot like asking people to join your LinkedIn professional network. But in all seriousness, before it does actually become like that, would you consider leaving us a review? Uh, It really helps to get the show out there. Thank you and see you next week. Thank you.